Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hi, this is Bill Peacock, and welcome to the Liberty Cafe. I'm blessed to have you here with me today. And I'm also blessed to be uh, sponsored, Liberty Cafe being sponsored by Texas Scorecard. It's a great group of uh, men and women that are fighting for liberty here in Texas and from a biblical worldview perspective. And I encourage everybody to go over to texasscorecard.com and see what you can do to join in the fight for liberty with them. All right, we're back this week with Pastor Rich Lusk. He's at uh, Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. He's pastoring there and has been there since 2004. As I mentioned last week, he uh, was uh, the director of Christian education and uh, the resident scholar. Did I get those just about right, Rich? Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. Yeah. That, that, that'll do. Okay. That's At Redeemer good. Presbyterian Church, uh, back when we were both there in the, the, the mid to late 1990s and where I first heard a lot of this teaching uh, from Rich. I'll tell you, you know, I came out of the Episcopal Church, kind of went to Second Baptist School down in Houston. And so what I mostly was used to was either not much about this or the kind of dispensational world falling apart kind of message. And and I, and, I, and at first, um, just when I first got to Redeemer in 98, I, I went to this class called Calvinism 101. It was taught by Franklin Hunt. You remember he and his wife, Donna. Yeah. And and. I'd never heard anything like that. And it was just like the scales were falling off my eyes. I mean, it was just amazing. And so I learned, you know, the five points and all those kind of good things. And then it wasn't too much long after that where I went to a Sunday school class. Um, and then also, I think later, um, some home fellowship groups where Rich was teaching about this, this positive vision of the future. Because again, I, I'd never had heard that. It was, we were, I've been taught and listened to from folks telling me about the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and we Christians just need to hang on. But but Rich brought this vision of this biblical vision that I'd never heard of before. And so last late last year, when Rich came to town here to be at a conference at King's Cross Presbyterian Church, um, and talked about this vision uh, from Matthew. 13 uh, or 16, Matthew 16. Uh, I thought it would really be great to have Rich on the um, on the the podcast. So this is week two. Thanks again for being back, Rich. Great to be with you, Bill. And um, we'll pause here for just a moment and listen to the passage again as read from the ESV, and then we'll get started. All right, Rich, as you... Um, focused on this passage in the sermon last year, you, you really focused on three key words. It was rock, keys, and gates. We went through the rock and the keys last week. So I, I want to get us started in on the gate you know, and what that means. And when, when you started talking about it in your sermon, you mentioned that really what Christ is doing when he's going at it from this perspective, that he's describing a great battle between the church and hell. So could you get us into this and, and tell us why this is the case? Yeah, so in Matthew 16, verse 19 is really the punchline of, of, of the passage here in Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Verse 19 is really the climactic moment in it. Um, well, really, I'd say verses 18 and 19 together, where Jesus makes these promises to Peter. And so in verses 18 and 19, you've got Jesus 
speaking to Peter on behalf of all the apostles and on behalf of the whole church. Peter's really a representative of the band of apostles and really a representative of the church. But yeah, there in verse 18, you, you really got what is the, the climactic moment where Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, several things about this are interesting. First, I think a lot of people have uh, in their minds when they read this passage, and this this shows you how much the presuppositions we bring to the text can shape what we hear in the text or how we read the text. There are a lot of people who come to a text like this with the mindset that the church will always be a beleaguered, persecuted minority with relatively little influence and that the church's future is very pessimistic. And so they read a passage like this and they say, well, see, the church will hang on to the very end. There's always going to be a remnant and hell might stomp out most of the church or might overcome most of the church and, and, and overcome most of, of everything else. But there's always going to be a few people of God who are faithful and who hang on to the very end. And that's how they read it. And so not even the gates of hell will be, you know, the gates of hell will not be completely successful in eradicating the church. But actually, I would argue the imagery and the language points in the opposite direction. Gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are defensive weapons. And so it's not Hades. It's not the, the realm of Satan that is doing the assaulting and the attacking and the advancing here. It is the church that's being sent forth as a, as a, as a marching army. And the church is coming against the gates of Hades. Okay, Satan's kingdom, Satan's domain, and not even the gates of Hades will be able to stand against the victorious march of the church. That's what the passage and the imagery really mean. And remember, Jesus here is in Caesarea Philippi, a place that uh, at least some historians tell us was known to Jews as the gates of Hades because it was a place uh, rife with pagan worship and uh, all kinds of uh, brutal pagan vices uh, very much dominated, this region very much dominated by a pagan way of life. And Jesus takes his disciples out there to the worst place of all, to you know, kind of the ancient version of Sin City. He takes them to the most decadent, depraved place of all. And he says, look, even a place like this is not going to be able to stand against the victorious march of the church as she goes forth to disciple all nations and make the nations my disciples. And so Jesus here is really making a promise. And it's a promise that should undergird and support a very optimistic and hopeful vision for the church's future. Now, that doesn't mean that the church is going to uh, always be on the up and up as if the church takes off like a rocket. Uh, the church is more like, a, you know, a good uh, long term stock that you buy and hold. And sure, it has its down, it has its down moments. It has its down cycles. Sometimes it's a bear market for the church. But in the long run, you've got to be bullish about the church because of these promises that Jesus has made. And this is this is a very prominent promise that Jesus makes. So the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Really, the word prevail may be a little bit confusing. Read it this way. The gates of hell will not stand against the church or the gates of hell cannot withstand the victorious march of the church. That's really what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is promising. And, and note this too. Jesus says in this verse, I will build my church. It is his church, not our church. It's his church and building the church so that his church fills all nations, building the church the same way, say, that Solomon built the temple. 
uh, building the church is his project. It's his undertaking. He is the one who guarantees its success. Jesus is not going to fail in his mission and his work of building the church and overcoming the gates of hell. So think about this. Every time a sinner is converted, okay, uh, that is the, that's hell, that's Hades, that's the realm of Satan uh, being plundered uh, and being overthrown. And we might say, well, you know, I look out at the world today and it seems like Satan has a lot more influence than Jesus. And I would say, well, not, not so fast. Let's think about the overall trajectory of the last 2000 years. Okay. When Jesus died on the cross, there were virtually no disciples of Jesus left. Pretty much everybody had abandoned him. Maybe, maybe not Mary, his mother or John, but pretty much everybody. Think of Peter that, that is mentioned right here. Peter has denied Jesus three times. Peter has uh, abandoned Jesus in his moment of greatest need. And so Jesus dies on the cross. It looks like there are no disciples of Jesus left. But then after his resurrection, he regathers the band of the, of the disciples, minus Judas. But there are some other disciples who gather also. And of course, a, a, a replacement for, Ju for Judas is eventually chosen. Uh, at Pentecost, uh, there are 120 that are gathered. And then by the end of the day, after Peter's preached his sermon, the Holy Spirit's been poured out, 3,000 plus are baptized and brought into the church. And then Luke closes out Acts chapter 2, saying the Lord was adding to their number daily those who are being saved. And so the numbers continue to grow. And then as Acts traces the story, everywhere that, uh, that, the, uh, that the early Christian missionaries go, everywhere the apostles go and other disciples go to preach the gospel. Sometimes they don't have very much success, but again and again, Luke tells us the word grew and multiplied or the church grew and multiplied. So you've, you've constantly got this sense that the church is this growing, uh, advancing institution uh, that Jesus has inaugurated and, and now it is growing uh, to fill the earth. And, and of course, you come to the end of Acts and, and and Paul's awaiting his audience with Caesar. And the thing is, you see lots of suffering along the way, but the point of these promises about the growth of the church, the point of these promises is not that the church won't suffer. It's that the church's suffering will be suffering unto victory. If you go back to World War II, soldiers on the Allied side and soldiers on the Axis side both suffered. But one side suffered unto victory, the other side suffered unto defeat. What Jesus is saying is, yes, his disciples will suffer, but it will be suffering unto victory. The church serves and suffers her way to victory. And a lot of the early Christians got this. Tertullian, uh, one of the early church fathers, so now in the post-apostolic era, uh, he said that uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That actually it's like when the, when the blood of Christians is shed, it's like you're, you're watering the earth so the church can be even more fertile and, and fruitful going forward. Uh, he said that he said the church is like grass. The more you mow us down, the faster we grow. OK, so they had this sense that, yes, we're going to suffer, but it is suffering unto victory. And, and I would point this out too: every single image we have of the kingdom of God in Scripture is an image of something that grows. OK, so, for example, Daniel had a vision in Daniel chapter two of a stone that grows into a mountain. Uh, Isaiah had a vision of a stump that grows into a great tree. That's one that Jesus himself picked up on. So again and again, you have these images of the kingdom, these metaphors or symbols of the kingdom. Every single one that we have is of something that grows or matures, that starts small and then becomes great 
And that's how we have to look at the kingdom. Uh, you know, we're, we're in the middle of church history. I don't mean literally in the middle, but I mean, you know, we're somewhere between the beginning and end of church history and the kingdom is growing and, and the kingdom's bigger now than it was say a thousand years ago. And a thousand years from now will be bigger than it is today. And I think the point, you know, as you come to the end of Matthew's gospel, the point is Jesus wants all nations, all people groups uh, to be baptized, to be discipled, to be taught his commands. And that is going to happen. Uh, the world is going to be filled with disciples of Jesus. And again, that's not going to happen automatically, but Jesus will build his church and grow his church so that it fills the earth. And, and that gives us a great deal of hope, confidence, and courage, which I think are, are, are missing ingredients for many Christians in America today. You know, on the one yeah. hand, we're probably the most comfortable Christians that have ever lived. And yet at the same time, we manage to be some of the most pessimistic Christians that have ever lived. That's a combination that makes no sense at all. <laughs> you know, right. Right. Well, you know, th th this is, you know, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but, but sometimes it's really hard to see, you know, I, you know, I, I say a similar line to folks and I point out as you did in your sermon that, you know, we, we went from, you know, 120 to millions upon millions uh, today. But then I, I look back at church history and, and we look at the church and, and it pops up in, um, you know, the Middle East, Jerusalem in the Middle East. Well, where is the church today in the Middle East? Well, it's not much of it there anymore. And then it kind of spills over and spreads into Asia Minor, Turkey, right? Well, where is the church today in Asia Minor? Well, there's not a lot of it there. You know, it's there, but it doesn't look so successful. And then, then it comes over into Europe, Southern Europe, then up in Northern Europe and Great Britain. Well, where is the church in in England today or in France, right? I mean, it doesn't look so robust and successful from a lot of perspectives. And then finally it comes to America, right? The land of the free and the home of the brave and the pilgrims come and the Presbyterians come. And we, you know, we have the Mayflower compact that starts in the name of God and all these kind of things. And now we're operating in a country that is basically based on we, the people, Right. They're, the covenant with God has been replaced with a covenant with the people. And, you know, and we see what's happening in the culture around us today. And, yeah, I can point to folks and tell them, well, look, look what's happening in China and look what's happening uh, over in Africa. But it's, it's kind of hard for us to see this victorious church today. How, how do you respond to to uh, people who have that concern? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And so I, I, I do think one of the things that the church today needs to get straightened out is our what's called eschatology, our view of the future, not just the final things that come at the last day when Jesus makes his final return in glory, but everything that happens over the course of history, the trajectory of history. And again, uh, God gives us many, many promises uh, that tell us that the kingdom's going to grow. So for example, God's promise to Abraham, really the foundational promise uh, in so many ways, is that Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens and as the grains of sand on the seashore, which is a lot. I mean, that, you know, that, that's, that's pointing to a, a massive, uh, you know, massive kingdom growth and influence. He says, kings will come from you. Uh, so, you know, obviously there's, there's a great deal of glory and influence that will be found in Abraham's faithful descendants. Here's another way to think about it. Uh, will, will the first Adam drag more people to hell 
than the last Adam takes to heaven with him. Who has more impact on history, the first Adam or the last Adam? I think if you look at Romans chapter 5, you have to say it's going to be the last Adam who has the last word and who has a much greater impact on history, you know, in that sense than the first Adam. Now, I think this also requires us to think long term. Um, another uh, something that I think has made the church very myopic is a very short term uh, outlook that says, well, Jesus could come back at any minute and it's probably going to be really soon. There's no reason biblically to think that. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that would indicate Jesus is going to come back anytime soon. So I, I tell people, you know what, Jesus is probably not coming back in your lifetime. So now what? Well, now what do you do? Get to work. <laughs> Get to work building uh, building the, the, the church as, you know, Jesus has called you into this. He's going to build his church. He's going to be the one who does it, but he'll do it through his people. Uh, get to work building and advancing the kingdom of God in all the ways that you can in your sphere of influence, your domain uh, that God has entrusted to you. And uh, so I so I think we have to take a very different view than what a lot of American Christians have taken, which is this very pessimistic and short term view. I'm saying we need a hopeful long term view by contrast. And I think when we do that, you know, think about those Christians who lived in the medieval period. Uh, who built the, the glorious cathedrals that still stand to this day. The people who started working on those cathedrals knew that they would not live to see them completed. And yet they did it anyway, because they, they knew they were part of a larger story. They had a larger vision. It went beyond just what's good for me and my own life and my instant gratification. Uh, they saw that being part of something that's true and good and beautiful and that's lasting, that will have enduring value for generations to come, but that matters. You know, the reality is you can't do anything, you know, anything worth accomplishing really cannot be done in one lifetime. So none of us should be thinking just in terms of my own lifetime achievement, my, what I can accomplish in the, you know, the 50 or 70 or 90 years I'm given on this earth. You're part of a bigger story and you want to play your part and make your contribution in that larger story. You're one of a multitude of generations that will come and go from the face of the earth what does God want you to do in the time and place where he has put you? Okay, I think all exactly. that's really, really crucial. But here's the thing. I think, I think the, the eschatological question is a big one. But I think the other big question, which we've already touched on, but I want to revisit here for just a moment, is the ecclesiological question. So the eschatological question really buoys up our hope and helps us to see that all of our efforts are not in vain. Uh, that Jesus is going to build his church. He's going to overcome the gates of Hades. The kingdom of Satan is being continually plundered. The kingdom of life is growing and advancing. And yes, it's in fits and starts. Sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back. Uh, sometimes it, you know, we don't see that growth. But maybe we're caught in a time of declension for the kingdom of God. But still, long term, long range, we're hopeful and optimistic about the victory of Christ's kingdom, not just at the last day, but in history. Okay, but the other thing I think we've got to understand, and this is really, I think, a missing ingredient in a lot of Christian political activism in America, is the role of the church. Uh, a lot of American political activism thinks the only way we can change the world is if, if we can get our hands on the levers of power, and we have to hold political office, and then we have, you know, we have to get the right people elected, and then get the right bills passed, and that's what's going to, you know, that's what's going to really change things. I would say politics is really downstream. This is a common phrase among, especially among conservatives, but to say that politics is downstream from culture, that's true. But politics is also downstream from liturgy. It's downstream from uh, the church's mission and church discipline. It's downstream from those things that the church does that have a great deal of power. Uh, to shape the culture all around us. 
But because so many Christians today have a very low ecclesiology, a low view of the church, we really don't see it. And so we think the only thing we can do is focus on direct political activism. And I think there's a place for that activism. I'm not knocking it. I think we, we need that. We need Christians running for office. We need Christians proposing better laws than the ones they're passing today. We need Christians who have wisdom about things like the climate or the economy or welfare, what have we need. And I know that's a lot of the kind of work you do, Bill. Right. And I think we, we need that. But I think Christians in general have to understand the centrality of the church to cultural transformation. And we have to understand that the church's mission is to disciple the nations, which means the church is called to produce Christian civilization. And here's the thing. There are a lot of people today who would say, oh, you know, that sounds like Christian nationalism, and that would just be terrible. And part of me wants to say, well, what's, what's the alternative? If not Christian nationalism, is it pagan nationalism? Is it Islamic nationalism? I mean, what, what is it that you want? You know, what are you proposing? Let's talk about how scary that is, okay? Um, I actually think there's nothing better than to live under the reign of King Jesus. I think today the basic battle is between the, king, the, the crown rights of King Jesus and the clown rights of Joe Biden. I mean, who, who would you rather have as your ruler, a clown like Joe Biden or a king like Jesus? I mean, that's really what this is about. So uh, I would say Jesus knows how to rule the nations. He's given us wisdom in his word and wisdom revealed in the created order that we can use to structure a just and peaceful and harmonious society. Let's, let's, let's claim that and let's drive that vision forward. Here's the thing. If I, as a Christian, really love my non-Christian neighbor, I will want to evangelize him so that his soul can be saved and he can spend eternity in the glorious resurrection with Jesus. If I love my, my non-Christian neighbor, I'm going to want to evangelize him. But if I love my non-Christian neighbor, I'm also going to want him to live in a Christian society because that is truly what is best for everyone, is to live in a society shaped by biblical laws, Christian norms, that, that, that pays attention to and respects the divine design built into the created order. Yeah. That's what's best. It, it, so, so, so when Christians oppose things like, to use a real extreme example, uh, Drag Queen Story Hour at the local public library, uh, when we oppose that, yes, there are people who will find our opposition to that offensive and will call us transphobic. Well, the reality is, no matter what they call us, it's still the most loving thing to do. And the reality is you can't do anything worth doing without causing offense. There's nobody who's done anything useful in this world who did not encounter opposition. So we can't be cowed by that. We can't be discouraged by that. That's just part of it. Uh, there's no way to do anything worthwhile without encountering some level of persecution and opposition that you just have to push through. Uh, I think there are a lot of Christians out there who think if we're just winsome enough, if we're just articulate enough, if we're just nice enough, then maybe we can somehow advance the cause of the gospel without causing offense or without getting into trouble. I would say no. And it's not that winsomeness is bad. I mean, all things being equal, I think it's better to be winsome than obnoxious, for sure. But winsomeness is not right. going to win the war that we're in. Uh, so we need, we need to be wise. We have to be courageous. We have to be bold. We have to speak the truth plainly and directly, I think. We have to be savvy about that. Uh, but I think I think a lot of Christians today lack courage, they lack confidence, and they lack hope 
And, they, and a lot of this is because they don't understand the promises that Jesus has made about the growth of his kingdom, but they also don't understand the role that Christ has assigned to his church in the world, that there really is a kind of centrality to the church, and the church really is the engine that's going to drive this kind of cultural reformation that we long to see. Yeah, yeah the thing that has bolstered me as, as I look at the world around me, because I, I think you could actually you know, look at the world and, and say, okay, you know, the, the church has grown and grown millions upon millions of folks, but it hasn't done much for the culture. So we're, we're just heading towards a place where there's millions and millions and millions and more millions of Christians coming and they're all going to get saved out of this world that is just falling apart. Right. But I think one of the things that is, or several of the things that have pulled me out of there is one is you, you kind of look at this downward spiral, if you will. It looks like a downward spiral back in, in Judges, you know, just going down and down. You know, everybody's, you know, pays attention to Jesus when they when they get the judge and then they go down and down and down and down. But really, that downward spiral leads to King David and King David leads to Jesus Christ. So it, there really is an upward path going on there in the midst of this downfall. And then the other thing that kind of really gets to me is God told us from the beginning of time to be fruitful and multiply and fill the world, right? And of course, when he was telling us that, we were to be, we were filling the world not with just people, but with his disciples, because the offspring of Adam and Eve before the fall would have been God's disciples, right? Now, the fall came along, but then Jesus comes along in, in Matthew 28 and tells us to disciple all the nations, not the people in the nations, but all the nations. And then he tells us to teach them all that he's commanded us, right? And then it lay, earlier in Matthew, he tells us to pray for the kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he's given us all this stuff to do and told us to pray for these things. I can't believe that God, the Father, and you know, and then later God, the Son, would tell us to go do all these things, expecting us to fail, right? That, that yeah, there wouldn't... You're, you're, you're exactly right about that. Um, and I know we're probably getting to the end here, but I, I want to make one last point because I think this is something that also we've got to figure out a way to recover. There are a lot of people who think the idea of a Christian nation is a terrible idea because they don't understand all the positive contributions that the church, that Christians have made to our world. In fact, we have been taught not true history, but we've been taught a pack of satanic lies that basically say every time Christians have influence, it's bad for the church, it's bad for the mission of the church, and it's bad for the world. I mean, that, that's how a lot of people look at it. And so they're horrified by the idea of a Christian nation. They'd much rather have a secular nation or a religiously neutral nation as if such a thing were possible, which it's not. That's another one of the myths that we've got to counteract. And it's actually the very thing that Jesus told us to do something about uh, in the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not about producing pluralistic, religiously neutral nations. Uh, it's about producing Christian nations. It's about Christ inheriting the nations. But here's the thing about history. What, what has the church done for history? Well, let's just, let's just name a few things. The church has eradicated slavery, and more than once. Uh, the church has promoted uh, universal literacy in a way that no other institution in the history of the world has or could have done. The church created the university. Uh, the church provided the worldview that gave rise to modern science. Uh, the church has done more to uh, protect the vulnerable, to protect women, to protect children uh, than any other institution or worldview that's out there. 
the, the church, you know, I can just go on. The church has done more to uh, care for the poor and to eradicate poverty. The church has done more to promote prosperity by what it's taught about money and about a work ethic. Uh, so, so what, what, you know, what has the church done? The church has basically created the greatest civilization in the history of the world. And people want to act as if all the church has done is make negative contributions. Well, that's, that's just a lie. That's a lie that comes from Hades. <laughs> and and right. one of the things we need to do is to refute that lie, push back against that lie. Actually, when it comes to the contributions of Christians to the political order, our historic track records really, I would put it up against any other uh, worldview or uh, philosophy or religion. Uh, the Christian track record in terms of what we have produced, what, how, you know, what, what has happened when we've had a lot of influence has actually been pretty good for the world. Not to say Christians haven't made mistakes. We're not trying to whitewash history either. Exactly. That's those mistakes and be honest about them. But representative government itself, a covenantal view of government is itself a product of the church's teaching and the church's influence. So again, Christians don't always get it right, but we've got the right book. We've got the right king. We've got the right worldview. So long as we're willing to be faithful to our king and the revelation he's given to us. I agree hundred percent. Well, before we go, Rich, I'd just like you to think about or give us some thoughts about, so, it, you know, a lot of people don't have this positive vision for the world and, and we can talk about maybe at another time, how to better, proclaim that vision uh, to the to the world like you're doing but just given the fact that 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 we think and, and others in the reformed evangelical community think as well that you know we are going to have complete and total victory as I think you put in your in your um, sermon something along the lines of the church will be the winningest winningest institution in all history um, despite our failures like Peter just like Peter, we will be greatly used in history and across history and a long, slow march through all the world's institutions. Right? We're, right. we're going to win this battle. So yeah. given the fact where we are in this, this sort of pessimism in the church, where is the church lacking in digging into God's word and, and developing theologies of different things of the culture that we, we should be learning more about to help us be better equipped and better carry out our task in assaulting the, the, the gates of hell? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Bill. And, you know, it's interesting to me, if you look at other sort of rival worldviews or philosophies that are out there, uh, Marxists, for example, have a very optimistic view of what Marxism will do in history. They have an eschatology that says, in the end, Marxism wins. If you look at Islam, they have a very optimistic view of the future. In the end, they believe that Islam will win, that they'll conquer the nations. Uh, obviously, Christians have a very different view of how the future will unfold and a very different view of how to exercise influence in the world, a very different view of how to bring about cultural renewal, cultural reformation, cultural transformation than those other groups. But we ought to have uh, a similar kind of optimism or, or, or hope about the future for the kingdom of God. And I would say, actually, what's happened is worldviews like Marxism or Islam are basically Christian heresies. They're, they're offshoots of the Christian faith. They could never have come about historically without the Christian faith. Uh, they're sort of heretical uh, pick and choose. You know, they've kind of picked and they'll do their picking and choosing about what they want from the Christian worldview. But 
um, they're they're uh, so they're kind of heretical manifestations or or departures from the Christian faith, even though they depend on it in various ways. Uh, what do I think we need to recover? I think it's so so important for Christians to well, I, you know, honestly, Bill, I, I'm I'm a pastor. I would blame pastors for a lot of what's gone wrong. Because, uh, you know, as the, as the pastors, so the people. And so the people, so the culture. And I think pastors have not been very faithful in teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God. In some cases, we've been too cowardly to do so. In some cases, we're uh, poorly taught ourselves. And we've, you know, we've abandoned certain views that were uh, much more commonly held historically and in past and more faithful generations. But I, I would say if you're going to have Reformation, if you want to have cultural transformation, it has to start with Reformation in the church. Ecclesiastical Reformation is going to, going to be the key to cultural transformation. And if it's going to start in the church, it needs to start with pastors who will proclaim the whole counsel of God boldly and faithfully, who will apply the word of God, not just to personal problems and not just to personal salvation, but to wider social and political issues, because the Bible certainly comes to bear upon those things. The Bible is authoritative in everything of which it speaks, and it speaks of everything. And pastors need to make that clear to their people. So uh, that, that's where I would start. I, I would point the finger at myself and other pastors uh, who need to do a much better job and be much more faithful in how we preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Well, great. And and I'm glad that you are doing that. And um, I'm glad that you're encouraging other pastors. And there's a lot of other pastors I run across uh, who are doing the same thing. Pastor Craw at, at King's Cross down here in um, in Buda and, and those types of things. You know, one of the great things for me has been over the last few years is because, as you pointed out, I work a lot in the field of public policy and things like that, was the discovery, I don't know, maybe four years ago, something like that, of Protestant resistance theory. Mm-hmm. Right? Because yeah, I, I'd never heard of it before. And, uh, and, but the, the church has a way of responding to the needs of the world around us. And that was certainly the case with, with the, the needs presented to us by, by the world around us and what's going on out there. And that was certainly the case with the reformers when, you know, they, they had scripture that told them in Romans and other places, Peter, that uh, they needed to submit to their civil rulers, the rulers around them, yet those same rulers were trying to kill them, right? And, and so they came up with this idea of Protestant resistance theory that, you know, that, that the only, that the authority of these civil pastors, civil servants, civil rulers were, were limited. Only God's authority is unlimited. And right. so the church had to understand how to respond to that. And I think that's one of the great possibilities today is as we are dealing with rulers who are doing something similar, maybe at least in most countries, not as egregious as, as those were, but something similar where the, the rulers are oppressing the church. I think we're seeing a, a resurrection, if you will, or refining of this Protestant resistance theory and, and how we're supposed to deal with all different kinds of oppression from uh, the, the world around us today, from government. Yeah, that's so, great. And, and, and Protestant resistance theory or, or this Protestant doctrine of, of civil disobedience uh, and, 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 and resistance to tyranny that you're talking about grew out of a covenantal understanding of the scriptures. It grew out yeah. of understanding the Bible has a lot more to say about civil government than just Romans 13 and 1 Peter. Uh, so yeah, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's it's again, it's it's recapturing the whole counsel of God and then understanding God's given us wisdom 
for every area of life in his word that needs to be implemented. And a lot of times, yes, that is, there's a, there's a level of complexity and nuance that's there. The Bible is a big book and it takes a lot to seek to master it. But yes. And, and the other thing I would say along with that is you can't fix just one thing. <laughs> you know, we, we can't, I mean, I've talked, we talked about ecclesiology and eschatology primarily here. Now we're kind of getting into resistance theory. One thing I would say is that you know, when you have a biblical understanding of certain doctrines, they start to reinforce your understanding of other biblical doctrines. You can't just fix one thing. You know, these, these things tend to travel uh, in packs. They kind of come as a package deal. And so, you, you know, you talk, you, you know you're, the scales fall off your eyes in one area, and then all of a sudden several other areas become very clear to you where Scripture addresses these kind of things. And, and that's what we need more of. We, we need more and more of God's people who are not just coming to understand, say, God's sovereignty and salvation or the lordship of Jesus over all of life. But what all of that means for understanding of politics and economics and how, you know, say the principles that God revealed in uh, old covenant law in the Mosaic law to Israel, how those principles, the general equity of that law continues to apply to societies today and what that might look like uh, and how that produces a view of a, of a limited government. Uh, so there's just there's a you know, limited civil government. There's a lot of things here that uh, that uh, I think that the, 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 again going back to pastors need to teach better. Uh, Christians need to learn more. We need to better understand what God has taught us in His Word, and and figure out what it means to implement that in today's world. Well, Rich, you've given us a lot to think about today, and a lot to go in and dig into more into the Scripture and, and find out what God is teaching us about uh, how. We, we can walk in obedience to God and help the culture around us walk in obedience to God as well. So thank you very much for being on this week's Liberty Cafe. And thanks to all our listeners today for being here. And also thanks once again to our sponsor, Texas Scorecard. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.